The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I am your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. I really want to thank you for being with me, and I hope you'll contact me directly with questions, comments, and conversation. Every possible way to be in touch with me is on the Good Grief page at voiceamerica.com, including my website, email, and social media. And I wanted to let you all know out there that I've added an index to my website, which is www.weatheringgrief.com, so that you can easily find interviews on a particular subject, like cancer or reproductive loss or sudden loss, and it's cross-indexed so that when guests have talked about a few different types of loss, you can find it in any category. And there's also an index on guest expertise, such as um, a page on musicians and authors and artists. So I hope you'll take advantage of that on the, on the website. And stay tuned. I'll be adding links to buy the books, music, and films that all these wonderful guests I've gotten to talk with have produced. While you're on the website, just be sure to sign up for email notif- notifications so I can tell you about new things that come along for good grief. Today I'm welcoming Tracy Clantis. Tracy holds a master's degree in marriage and family counseling and has built a nat- national reputation as an expert on healing losses through her popular blog, La Belette Rouge. Freudian Sips on psychologytoday.com. I had to look that up to make sure that's really what it was. And her writings for the Huffington Post. I love that. She also has had interviews and advice featured in articles in Psychology's magazine, Red Book, and on Fox News Boston, among others. Her book, The Next Happy, Let Go of the Life You Planned and Find a New Way Forward, has just been released by Hazelton Publishing. And you can find out more about Tracy at www.tracyclantis.com. And that's T-R-A-C-E-Y-C-L-E-A-N-T-I-S. Welcome to Good Grief, Tracy. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you, and uh, as I told you right before we started, what I did love so much about your book that was that I would be sitting reading and I would reach a certain part and start laughing. There were so there was so much that um, allowed humor into, you know, of course, what is a difficult subject, grieving the loss of dreams. Um, so I really appreciate that about the book. Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, 
You know, I, I feel like uh, humor is is so important um, in, in therapy, in life, in in any situation where there's um, pain. It, it just it makes so uh, makes such a difference to be able to find the humor in it. To um, we were talking briefly about how Norman Cousins talked about the importance of humor in healing, and um, Viktor Frankl, and and um, it's just you know sort of my way with patience and in life. Um, if I can find a way to, to laugh at something, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. Well, the other thing I'm aware of, I, I really did not have a sense of humor before I went through my wife's illness and death. Um, the, it, it was that period of time in which I developed humor and often gallows humor that, mm-hmm. at that point. But it's sort of a way of looking at your experience with a little more objectivity, almost like meditation, you know, where you're a little bit at a distance observing what's happening and, and finding the humorous aspects to it. Yes? Absolutely. It, it is finding a, another perspective. And it, 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 for me, I talk about in the book that there was a, a certain time where I was in the, the height of my pain and, and my grief. And um, there was a comment that um, a, a, a woman made um, about children that just, um, it, it cracked me up. And it was the first time I was able to laugh at my own pain. And it really allowed me to start seeing it differently. Um, to just be able to find some way into laughter, it, it started to move something for me. That makes so much sense to me. And the, and I guess the second thing that I appreciated so much is that you were uh, kind of educating people about grief and how it works and how the loss of a dream affects people. And you were also at the same time sharing your own story, which to me gave the book so much more power um, because you used yourself as an example often, and I I think that deepens things so much for the reader. It was at the... um a conference. I was asked to speak at a fertility conference, and uh, the topic was on how to be happy without a, a biological child of your own. And I, I knew something about this, and it, it was actually um, a strange venue to be asked to speak um, on this topic because people who are attending a conference on fertility are still trying to conceive. And I sort of knew that I was going to be um, the skunk at the garden party and not everyone was going to be super excited to see me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really had this vision, um, pretty detailed vision of myself in the, in the basement um, it, it, with maybe some rats in attendance that I didn't expect people <laughs> to show up. And, uh-huh. um, and people did show up. And people were in the audience um, who were still trying to conceive. And I saw that they were looking to me for hope and guidance. I mean, yes, they, they looked at me with fear because I think I was their biggest fear. But they also wanted to hear that it was possible to be happy without what they wanted most. And I, I had prepared for the venue and I, I knew what I was going to say, but it was something in that moment that really constellated for me the awareness that I knew about this journey, that I uh, when I had given up on the, the dream of having a biological child of my own, I went to the bookstore, I went online, I went to all the places that you look um, in a moment of crisis for um, comfort, for guidance, for advice, and, and there wasn't much. Um, and so I, I had to find my own way in this. 
And, and it was in that moment when I was, when I was looking out and I became aware of, of how much I'd learned about this process and about mm. this, this territory that I realized that this was something not just about infertility, but that this was an experience of uh, losing a dream for an imagined life, losing uh, a, a dream of, uh, of a business, of a partner, of a career, uh, of a home, that there were so many um, dreams that people had to give up in their life and, and that there wasn't a lot of space in the culture to get, first of all, to give up on those dreams and secondly, for guidance on how to get through that loss. So yep. it, was, it was in that moment that I realized I really wanted to share my own experience um, and my own process, not just as a, a clinician, but my own personal experience, um, because I think when you're going through a loss like this, you really need to know someone gets the territory. Absolutely. The other thing that occurred to me is that in any, any kind of loss, there is the loss of a dream. Uh, he, you know, let's let's say uh, when my wife died, I lost the dream of g- getting older with her. Or you know, uh, I when I work with cancer patients, they they've lost the dream of um, a life in which they don't worry about illness. You know, so I think that's applicable in in every loss. Uh, the I, idea I agree that- totally. I I think that there's there. Uh, this this book is about any kind of uh, any kind of grief loss of uh, an I a dream about having a partner for the rest of your life the the dream of a certain kind of identity a certain the the dream of wishing you'd had a certain kind of childhood this isn't just about the kind of big D dreams that we think about like yeah. I'm going to be an actor or I'm going to you know make partner by forty or those kind of dreams. Um, that we kind of hear about from um, people standing in uh, the front of the stage at the Academy Awards about never giving right. up. Right. Um, those kind of big dreams. Uh, uh, this book is about any kind of dream, and I, it's, it's my premise that by the age of 21, we've probably already had some dreams that didn't work out uh, the way we'd hoped. Yes, but I was also aware, I've, I've um, been in the situation with many clients today even you know but mm. but almost every week where i'll say well what will it be like if that doesn't happen mm. and the person will say but i want it mm-hmm. and there's sort of a there's no space between those two things mm-hmm. uh, and so i, I was uh-huh. so i was so aware of that when i was reading your book because um that sense of if we want it of course, we should be able to confirm that we can make it happen. Mm-hmm. It's so uh, woven into our culture that I think that is particular to the loss of a big D dream. That sense of, but if I want it, yeah. Well, I think <laughs> how can I not up, have I think it? That can show up in little D dreams too, in terms of. You know, I see this with my own clients of, uh, I, well, but I want my, my father to understand. I want my mother to, to get my point of view on this. And that that's, um, that's a kind of, uh, I want that, but um, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to happen. So that there, even that can be, something as, as small as that can be uh, a dream um, worth grieving. And I also wonder if you agree that that's part of where, when people are not getting what they want, part of what panics them, because it kind of makes it seem like life and death. 
If you must, I, I, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, I remember so clearly when I um, came to the end of, of pursuing um, having my own child that that when I would share that with people, and uh, let me tell you over time how I language that um, has changed dramatically, but in the beginning mm-hmm. I would say things like, oh, I wasn't blessed or I wasn't lucky or we're just going to take a break or even that kind of gentle sharing um, when I wasn't saying, you know, I, I've had infertility and I couldn't have kids, it would still bring up people's death anxiety. I could see it. I could, I, mm-hmm. I could see that, that even if they had kids of their own, that there was something in hearing that dream didn't work out that, that made people aware of their own dreams that might not work out. They might not yes. have that partner for the rest of their life. They might not uh, achieve their career goals. They might not um, have children go to the colleges that they want them to. That, that it just brings up that awareness of, I, I'm not really in control, and I, I'd like to believe that I am in control. I feel like this would be a great moment to share with the listeners the reading that uh, I guess you would label the dark side of optimism. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, the dark side of optimism. Never give up is so beloved a philosophy that we dare not say out loud that we're actually letting go our, our dream, that we're no longer going to try to save the marriage or be the star athlete or be a mother or launch the startup, or get the corner office, or achieve all the great things that we set out to achieve. Seriously, there are some things you just can't say out loud. Number one, you can't shout, shout fire in the public place unless there's really something burning. And number two, you can't say you're giving up on a dream unless you're willing to be seen as a complete and total failure. See for yourself. Google, give up on your dream. Page through all the returns and see what unwanted words appear again and again and again in the advice that people are giving you. Yeah, that's right. Google and everyone else are telling you what you've already heard a million times before. Never give up on a dream. Never, 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 never give up on your dream. Never. It's standard advice. It's an answer of hope and optimism, which is lovely on the one hand. But there's something that isn't often said about the other hand. Sometimes hope is sadistic. Sometimes optimism is dangerous. And sometimes this annoying thing called reality really must be faced if you're to preserve your sanity. This annoying thing called reality. I love that. <laughs> it does. It just keep. It, it does just keep being reality, doesn't it? It does. It can't um, be completely it, bargained with. No, no, there, there are limits and realities, and, you know, that, that's part of why I, I featured in the book all of these statistics about, uh, the, that no one wants to hear, the statistics about marriage, the statistics about how many businesses fail, the statistics of uh, 85% of members of the Screen Actors Guild are unemployed, the um, really terribly sad statistics about how few people who dream of being college athletes, professional athletes, never go on to achieve it. Point, 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 zero, zero, one percent uh, of, of people who do MFAs in dance go on to be professional dancers. Yes. These are realities that if we face, we can, we can stop calling ourselves these horrible names like quitter, loser, failure, and um, that, that activates so much guilt and shame and, and really stop us in our ability to, to move on and, and find uh, other ways to be happy and find new, new dreams. 
New dreams, and maybe also I was I was thinking quite a bit reading the book about how sometimes the elements of the dream are kind of you can kind of um, it's believable that those things can be met. Yes, it's the particular I, I, yeah, it, way that we yeah. are determined to meet them that can't always be met. Exactly. And I, I kind of, I talk in the dream about, um, I was trained in uh, psychodynamic, psychoanalytic psychotherapy. And so um, I do a lot of dream work in my, in my uh, practice. Um, and when I say that, what I'm talking about, uh, I think everyone understands, is, is about nighttime dreams. And it's my premise that daytime dreams need to, need to be analyzed as well. Mm. And to... Uh, you know, every, uh, if someone brings in a dream about something they dreamt last night, it usually starts with, I had a crazy dream. Um, and then they go on to tell me about that they were figure skating with um, George Washington. <laughs> and, um, and then we kind of, we, we pull it apart and we figure out, what was that dream about? And it, it's very rare that people come in to me and say, I had the craziest dream um, about being on American Idol, or I had the craziest dream that I was going to somehow get be able to buy that house behind the uh, the uh, gates. Um, people are, are less open to wanting to analyze what does that dream mean and what is it you really want. And, and it's something that I invite through a series of questions in the book to really help people discover what is it they really, 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 really wanted from that dream. Mm. Because there's some narrative. Um, maybe initially, um, when you're, first, when you're lo- first looking at it, there's just a kind of impulse in some people of, I just wanted it. I don't want to talk about I don't want to talk about the underlying. Who cares um, why? <laughs> Who cares? I just want it. Um, but, but it's important to look at because, first of all, you may not be able to get it through that dream. There may be some fantasy. You know, I'll hear people talk about dreams of... Uh, Know, acting that that and the kind of fantasy will often be everyone will love me. Well, that's not a profession actually where um, I wouldn't imagine that most actors feel universally loved. I think um, <laughs> uh, I, I hear a lot My of daughters in that, that field. I know that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's actually a career. Probably uh, you know I'm not I'm not an actress, but where you're likely to feel a lot of rejection and criticism. Um, and people that I spoke to in the book, um, one one woman was was pursuing a career in diplomacy. And when I asked her the questions that are in the book, she was able to determine that it really kind of came from growing up in a family where there were parents of um, different cultural backgrounds that that ultimately uh, the the relationship didn't stay together. And so there was a kind of longing to fix that through her career choice. Oh, that's so so juicy, and uh, let's come back to it after our break. It's time for our first break. Uh, that that just rings a lot of bells for me, so we'll, we'll start there after the break. And listeners, you can go to my social media to let me know what you think about the show today and to connect with me, make a counseling appointment in California, or hire me as a speaker or consultant anywhere. And to find more about Tracy Clantis, you can go to www.tracyglantis.com Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. 
You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here today with Tracy Clantis, author of The Next Happy, just released by Hazelden Publishing. And before the break, we were talking about um, the exploration of what needs your meeting with the dream. Would that be an appropriate way to say it? Absolutely. Um, and uh, I was... Um, so aware. I thought about this a lot in the book because I really resonated with your drive to have a child. Um, when I had my first child, I'm, I was not in a great relationship. I was kind of broke. I was, um, it wasn't really a hospitable time. Plus, I'm a lesbian. That was a complication, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, oh my gosh, the drive was profound. It was just something I felt I must do, uh, which, of course, isn't true. Uh, and, and I only discovered after actually having my first child some of the reasons for that drive. I actually went into therapy when she was maybe 10 months old because I realized, whoa, there are some things going on here. This is bringing up a lot of stuff. Mm. Uh, so although I ostensibly got my dream... I still had to eventually deal with what what meaning that had for me and get it disconnected from from that because of course dreams don't turn out the way you imagine them they turn out the way that they are <laughs> you know yes yes exactly and I, and I write in the book about how uh very often we're, when we're kind of imagining and fantasizing about the dream, there's so little impingement. There's so little reality we bring to it. it it's the the version of the dream in, in fantasy is so different than it can ever be. And so, you know, I, I sometimes think of um, Truman Capote's famous line, more tears are cried over answered prayers. Um, 
um, mm-hmm. than the unanswered. And, and I don't know if that's actually true, but, uh, but I know <laughs> that there's, there's likely, um, there's certainly some disappointment and some loss if, if the dream doesn't give you um, what you imagined and what you were certain um, it would give you, even if unconsciously. I also think there's, uh, and I really want to know your opinion about this, what I noticed was because I had so avidly dreamed that and, you know, set out fearlessly towards it, and there was very little understanding that I was still going to have difficulties from people around me. For instance, if I'd say, oh, God, my kid cried all day, you know, uh, or something like that, people would say, but you really wanted this, mm-hmm. as if yeah. that dis- disqualified being upset about anything. So yes, and, and, that's and, a slightly you know, different is, angle. It's an interesting I, word. <laughs> you know, what, um, you really wanted this. Well, is that? did you really want um, your child to cry all night? I Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> probably that's not really what you wanted. No, um, but there's sort so, of a package quality, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, both if you don't realize a particular dream or if you do. Absolutely. Uh, that, that sort of hamstrings people, don't you think? Absolutely. And, and you know, the, the big moment for me when um, I came to this question was in my own therapy when I was in my, my grief and um, wailing and keening on my analyst couch and, and um, being asked, you know, why do you really want this? And uh, I, I remember at the time feeling just outraged at the question. It just it seemed self-evident and I didn't really want to engage with it. And... And then I really started to, to look and see that there was a desire to, uh, to make, to kind of right a wrong, to, to create a different childhood than the childhood I'd had and to give that childhood to someone else. And when I became aware of that, of course, there was still, there was still a desire to have a child. There was some of that that was separate from 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 that wounding. Sure, but that wasn't everything. That wasn't everything. But but when I became aware of that, then I started to be able to give some of that to myself and and create some corrective experiences for myself uh, in terms of uh, of providing myself with with um, nurturing and care and and tending that I wanted to uh, create for for this other. Hmm. That reminds me of a, a Stephen Levine um, a thing he used to say all the time, which was, um, hold, you, hold yourself as if you were your only child. Oh, oh that's lovely. Uh, lovely. Yeah, that just has so much emotional resonance and so connects with what you're talking about. Mm, absolutely. Uh, I was also, this is a, a real change of subject, but um, I was quite aware um, of your ex-husband in the book, even though you didn't talk about him very much. Mm-hmm. And I wondered because um, I was, of course, thinking about my circumstance when I had my first child and and sort of not feeling completely supported mm-hmm. um, and and how difficult that was. And I just wondered if that was also an added difficulty or or whether you were really together on it at that time uh, I think I, I think our grief was very different and uh, I, I think our 
you know, I, I talk in the book about calling the time of death on a dream, and that's oh, that's a you know that's not and not an easy thing to do. And I I think that we both had very very different timing um, timings on that, and and that was certainly difficult. Um, I I think that that he continued to have hope um, long after I did, and and that was certainly um, very difficult for both of us. Those those places in which. Um you know, you can't have, you don't have the the human support. I'm I'm doing a presentation Saturday on post traumatic growth, mm-hmm. um, and and one thing they talk about it is is that it's if you're witnessed, if people resonate with what you're going through, you're just hugely more likely to make something of the experience that you find valuable. I, I I I so agree with that, and I um, turned in in my grief. I turned at the time I had a blog, and um, I had never intended to write about my own infertility and my own process. I was a pretty um, stealthy blogger. No one knew I was a therapist, and no one knew my name, and <laughs> um, and no one knew that I was going through infertility treatment. I was writing about my love of things French and. Never imagined that I would write about that, but you know the word "never" is tricky. Um, it is, isn't it? <laughs> so I was, um, you know, I was loaded up on progesterone and um, and had just gotten the news that we were not pregnant again. And um, I went to my blog and I shared my story. And um, I can tell you the moment that I pressed submit and that that moment between the, uh, then and the first comment was, uh, "Ooh." Um, pretty scary, but I immediately received so much support and so much um, witnessing and and encouragement and kindness um, that it was it was extraordinary. These people that I'd never met, I was able to to get so much um, kindness and validation and um, acknowledging of why I felt why I did and um, I also turned um, to therapy. Um, Surprisingly, surprisingly, that took me a little while to to get into my own therapy around this. Um, like I said, I came from a kind of psychoanalytic background, and I somehow I don't know how this happened, but I didn't think of of going to therapy for grief. I don't know what I was thinking, but um, happily, I don't friends, think that's just you. I mean, there's often on I I notice on websites that have articles on different psychological subjects. There uh-huh. are no articles on grief. Ah. Uh-huh. Yeah, Which is, I, I, you know, <laughs> I think almost in a way it's, um, you know, grief and, uh, you know, Brene Brown writes about, about shame and that that's become such a hot topic. I, I did my graduate thesis on, um, on shame and, and, you know, article after article said people don't want to talk about it because it brings their, up their own shame. And I think in the same way, therapists or, or, or you know, or, or, or we don't like to talk about our own grief. We just want to just get through it. We just want to move through it as quickly as possible. And I, I had a little bit of that. And and I had some of those feelings um, that I hear from, from patients and clients when they call me and say, you know, shouldn't I be done by now? Shouldn't this be over? Shouldn't I move? How long is this going to last? I mean, just a kind of urgency to get to the bright side, to see the silver lining, to to um, to change it and transform it as, as quickly as possible. And I, I was there and coming into therapy and really having a place that allowed me to feel every nitty-gritty, icky um, moment of it, what really is what 
was hugely important in, in my getting to my next happy. It's so amazing because I think, I think therapy at its best is a place to be human, uh, mm. you know, to, to observe your own human experience and see what you can make out of it. Absolutely. And what is more uh, universal than loss of various kinds? Uh, you know, an, and yet, an somehow, yeah. we don't um, automatically um, maybe connect that. I mean, I do, because that's what I do. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, as a general field, uh, we don't see what we're doing as grief work. That's, it's certainly changed how I think about therapy. And it certainly changed my, um, you know, time orientation. And, and actually, I think that that's, that was a piece of it. I think that um, therapeutically that I, I thought so much about the past and um, how, the, how the past impacted the present and that that was um, something that was very important for me um, clinically. Mm-hmm. And as I started to really do the grief work, I started to see um, that my time orientation in the dream had moved completely into future orientation. So I was sort of living in two time zones, um, huh. the, the past and the future, and the, the now wasn't something I liked so much. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I know there's the huh? power of now, but uh, I didn't read them. Um, so, I, um, so and, you know, and everyone I spoke to, Cheryl, when I was interviewing for the book, people shared again and again that when they let go of their dream, they stopped living in the future or for the future and that part of really grieving brought them into the now and that their, their focus and their, their time zone had changed, so to speak, by grieving. That really, uh, that really hits me. And what I thought about was, you know, I was in sort of an eight-year grief with my wife. She was dying that whole time. And mm. there was a certain point at which uh, the future stopped being a big part of what either of us were thinking about. Mm. And life was actually extremely happy mm. Mm. Uh, because it was totally present. You know, if there, if we came to terms with there really wasn't a future, then everything was happening right now. Yes. So that's yeah. that's another avenue to what you're talking about. Um, that that's very familiar to me. That it's actually possible if you have enough time to come to terms with that, and it it changes the way you live in many positive ways. It it absolutely does, and I I think, you know, I I, I really um, am so mindful um, of what I'm asking the reader to do the difficulty of really grieving these things and and to um, feel feelings that maybe your family said you can't, that um, society says you can't, you know, things like envy, guilt, shame. No, nobody wants to feel these things. Um, yeah. But by really allowing yourself the full range of the grief experience and not quickly trying to press it down, stuff it down, put a silver lining on it, put a bow on it, and and finding some some other task or some other person or some other thing that you're going to put all of that hope on, um, it really can change your your whole way of being. It can it can allow you to to moving to move into the present without a lot of mindfulness meditation. It really it, it is grieving is a mindfulness meditation. 
You know what? I wonder if you could read that section um, that starts, If Life Were Fair, because that seems directly connected to what you're talking about. Sure. This is from the, ch- the chapter, The Ugly Step Siblings of Emotions. If life were fair... During your grieving, you would be visited by angels, fairies, and unicorns to aid you in your agony. And they would come bearing a big vat of calorie-free yet rich-tasting fettuccine Alfredo, a Greek chorus to sing you songs about how life is unfair, and a team of people to massage away the pain of the hard truth. What makes grief grief such a bitch is is what shows up instead are the ugly step-siblings of emotion. Envy, fear, shame, sadness, and anger. We don't want the ugly step-siblings of emotion anywhere near us. They have warts, they smell bad, they have nasty teeth, and hairs on their chinny-chin-chins. We don't want these ugly step-siblings sitting on the couch, sleeping in our bed, and eating the food in our fridge. But guess what? These emotions are your companions in grief. They're totally normal and necessary reactions, and they're here to stay at least until you've worked through them. Trust me, things will only get worse if you try to repress these feelings and kick them out of your psyche. The more you repress them through avoidance, numbing, overworking, overeating, overdrinking, overshopping, the more the ugly step-siblings push back, get meaner and louder until you can't do anything because they've taken your energy, your life force, and your dreams for life. The result of this sad state of affairs is that you're now facing full-blown depression. My point? These bitches will take you down unless you make space for them. I actually saw that visually when I read it. <laughs> you know, I actually... <laughs> I had a, a clearer picture of <laughs> something a little worse than the ugly stepsisters. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I really, yeah, I, I have a very uh, strong image of them as well. But I also had a very strong image of the angels and fairies and unicorns and the uh, Alfredo. But sadly, that didn't show up. <laughs> <laughs> Except in your imagination. <laughs> Except in my imagination. That's right. Yeah. Well, so many times, you know, since I work with grief all the time, um, people say, you know, many times during the course of one grief. Why isn't it over? Or, mm. you know, um, why is this taking so long? How could it take so long? And I'm, I'm often thinking, I'm not sure that you've really let yourself have it yet. Mm. Okay. <laughs> you know, okay. I think there's such a premonition, uh, premonition uh, uh, a stop okay. for those feelings. Uh, we're, we're really, we really are taught to keep them somewhere else. Absolutely, and I, I think that, that maybe there's some of the emotions that we're okay with. Maybe we're al- allowed anger in our family, so we can, have, we can have the anger, but when it comes to the sadness, maybe we got the message, you know, you bet go back into your room, and, and when, you, when you can put a smile on your face, come out, um, or, or maybe the sadness is okay and the anger is not okay, and certainly um, I would say that envy is, is one of the, um, the reactions in grief that that people are really not okay with. You know, it was, it was so interesting. I, I interviewed people for, for every uh, stage of this process of, of letting go, moving on, and, and getting to your next happy. And the one topic that people did not want to talk to me about was envy. 
I, I, I would imagine. set up the interviews and people would say, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, oh, you know, uh. I can't, I can't. I'm sorry. It's not going to work out. Um, people don't want to admit their envy. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, it, it activates shame. We're not supposed to feel that way. We're not supposed to, um, to have those kind of feelings and not supposed to lead to a lot of repression. And, let's let's uh, pick that up after our next after this break that we're that it's time for now because I think that's such an important thing on both ends you know both the envy we have and the envy we fear other people having of us absolutely um, during the break listeners go go ahead and go to the uh, good grief page and look me up and find Tracy at www.tracycleantis.com be back soon. your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness if you think you've seen online tv before let us surprise you voiceamerica.tv is online now the leader in live internet talk radio has done it again multiple channels a state-of-the-art viewing experience live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day it's exactly what you want when you want it voiceamerica.tv from health and wellness to business sports and everything in between discover our new world visit voiceamerica.tv now and experience the future of online television voiceamerica.tv We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. Today I'm talking with Tracy Cleantis about her new book, The Next Happy, about letting go of dreams and moving forward. And before the break, um, you brought up such, I think, such a vital topic, uh, envy. And, uh, and uh, I've, I've put a lot of thought into envy um, because I've had a, pretty high level of fear of being envied in my life mm. for no apparent reason. Um, and, <laughs> and so, I, well, what is envy and what does it do? Because everything's there for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, in a way, there's an upside of envy where you're saying, I have what you want. How do I get there or something? But maybe, as we were saying during the break, there is also a use of um, you have what I want. I hate you because it kind of mobilizes energy absolutely i think i think all of the anger um emotion it's the intention of anger to get you moving where sadness has you isolating and stuck and, and inside and 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 envy wants you to say to see you want this and it meant so much to you and and it allows space 
for you to feel anger about it not working out the way you wanted it to. Um, so I, I, I really, really try to make space uh, in the book and, and in my clinical work for that envy and for um, descaling, deshaming envy and, and having it be something that, that it's a universal experience. We've all felt this. Absolutely. And, um, I, I, you know, I don't want to make, I mean, our wanting is not our enemy. You know, that's what also gets us going towards what we, uh, what makes life better. You know, if we want to, if we want a peaceful or more peaceful life, we might meditate. If we want to be healthier, we might go to the gym. You know, there's want uh, yeah, in absolutely. all those things. Uh, if we want yeah. a date, we and might go on match. There's a paradox in, in that place of when, an, when envy starts, um, very often people are kind of in a phase of they're accepting the reality that this is not going to happen. And that's part of why there's so much anger um, in that reaction of seeing someone else having what you want. But there also can be a kind of, uh, I, I don't want to let myself want. So it, there can almost be some self-anger in that. Mm. Of I should just accept this reality. I should just move on. I shouldn't want it. I sh- I should just repress these feelings, and I should just be able to to move into the next thing and not feel what I'm feeling. So so um, avoid it as long as possible, but it, because it's so terrible. But once it's there, don't feel it for very long because it should be able to just be over quickly. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Real paradox. Yeah. I I would like. It, if you would share the Colonel Sanders part of the book, because that whole dilemma that we've been talking about at the periphery is sort of at the center of the book, from my view, that um, the, the sense of uh, never give up in, di- in direct opposition to, um, you know, um, don't, be, don't be crazy, don't do the same thing and expect different results. Absolutely. Could you share that? Uh, the, the- this is, this is from the chapter, uh, Why Did the Chicken Push the Rock Up the Hill? A cautionary tale of what can happen if you don't give up. If you have, like me, spent a little too much time in the self-help section of the bookstore and or misspent some of the glowing days of your youth listening to infomercial gurus pr- promising you can have it all in 30 days, if you only purchased their transformational program for three easy low payments of forty nine ninety five then you've likely heard two bits of contrary advice that are at the heart of many self-help pitches and at the heart of the, many of the problems people encounter when they refuse to give up on their dream. Bit one is a quote that has been misattributed to Albert Einstein, Benjamin Franklin, Mark Twain, and Tony Robbins, and still, one, still no one knows exactly who uttered it first. It's the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Well, that is not actually the definition of insanity. I know what they're getting at, and I'm betting you do too. It's become a cultural platitude that we accept as true the minute we hear it. Oh, yeah, I keep dating the same kind of guys and it never works out, we say. Or, I continue to make the same self-destructive choices over and over, and it takes me further away from from where I want to be. Clearly, it's foolish, foolhardy, not entirely wise of us to do that same thing over and over and expect different results. True enough. I'm good with this. I take no issue. However, often in the same self-help speech, same infomercial, same book, and sometimes even in the same chapter, we're given bit two, which is a story like the famous one about Colonel Sanders. You know the guy responsible for bringing you the delicious yet nutritionally questionable KFC original recipe fried chicken. 
and which flies in the face of the advice given in bit one. When the self-helpers drag out a story like the colonels, it's always to teach us the importance of tenacity and inspire us to never, never, never give up. You see, the colonel was 65 years old, retired, and broke with a small house, a beat-up car, a coronary-clogging yet highly delicious recipe for fried chicken, and of course, of course, a dream. As the story goes, the colonel went to more than a 1,000 restaurants and offered them the same secret recipe for only a small commission on every order of chicken. The colonel was told no more than a 1,000 times, yet he undauntedly preserved, persevered, and ultimately succeeded beyond his wildest expectation. We are supposed to be impressed by his perseverance, yet his perseverance is in direct contradiction of the definition of insanity deal. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) He's such a good example, isn't he? I, I believe that we're that we're sort of a culture possessed by the myth of Sisyphus, and, and I, I don't know if you remember Sisyphus, but he was a poor mm-hmm. character in Greek mythology who was uh, burdened with a, the horrible task of pushing a rock up the hill and, and never quite getting there. And it's almost right to the top of the hill, and then the rock slides right back to the bottom. And I, and I think, in a way, our culture says that trying is more important in achieving. And, and I think the way that happens is we love stories about someone who's trying, who's almost about to make it happen. But as soon as they get there, we love to knock them down. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, I think the never give up is more important message culturally than make it happen. It, it's, the, 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 it's about the effort of, of endlessly trying. But there's times... When that trying has very dangerous effects on your body, your finances, your relationships, your mental health, uh, in terms of your whole life, sticking with that that mindset um, can be really terribly damaging and make people feel terrible when they have to make a decision um, that's that's really for their best interest. Absolutely. I, I, um, you know, I'm thinking of the serenity prayer right now (laughs) and I've always loved the third part of that, the wisdom to know the difference between the things you need to accept and the things that you work to change. Um, yeah, it seems to me that's such a, a key concept for us as human beings. Absolutely. And I, I sort of jokingly call myself in the book, um, the Dr. Kevorkian of dreams. And, you know, people kind of are aghast at that. It sounds horrible. But it's, it's not that I'm telling people to give up on their dream. I'm not. If the dream is right for you and it's not having negative consequences, keep at it. Great. However, um, what Dr. Kevorkian did was he asked terminally ill patients a series of questions to determine if there was no other option, if their suffering was so great that it was, was it, the compassionate and kind thing to help someone let go of, of, of a painful existence. And, and that's very much what, what my intention is, is to create a kind of guidebook to surrender. It, if, if it has become hurtful and painful and there are no other options and, and it's time um, because the costs are too great and you're only sticking with it because you believe it's the only way you can be happy and uh, you've invested so much you can't give up now, but you have no relationships, you have no money, you, you can't afford your insurance, you, you've, you feel terrible about yourself, you're having to um, you know, drink too much, eat too much, shop too much because you feel um, no self-worth without achieving this thing. 
then it's time to really take a look and ask yourself some questions of, is it, is it time for me to let go? And, and why might I not want to? And what might I really want from this dream? One thing I was very struck by in the book is that I think, I think that there are only, if I'm remembering right, a couple of chapters at the end about uh, moving towards a new dream. Yes. Uh, most of the most of the book is about letting go of the dream of the big D dream you had, and yeah. I thought that was fascinating because what I've what I've experienced and maybe everybody I've actually had on this show has experienced is that once you face your grief, there's a different quality to wanting things, perhaps. Uh, I, I was really struck by how your next dream evolved. Um, it there's almost a, a braille method feeling about it. You know, mm-hmm. you had to express yourself, so you put it on your blog. You know, uh-huh. um, there there's much more of a sort of natural movement. Maybe yeah. I, yeah. I'm not sure if I'm I'm capturing that entirely, but I have noticed that with a long a lot of people. You know, everybody I've had on the show is very passionate about what they do. Mm. And they didn't, most of us didn't come to it by saying, I want to be a blank. Absolutely. Uh, We came to it by way of saying, I need to do this. Yes. Yes. Uh, it's, it's It's a very different angle on doing (laughs) <laughs> maybe yeah and I, yeah, and I wondered and, and, what you would say about that in these last couple of minutes because that's the next stage that you know maybe your dreams will come to you after you grieve what you yeah. tried to make happen yeah and I would say over and over that everyone I spoke to um, you know first of all they thought they'd never be happy without it and then um, all of a sudden they went through the stages of grieving and, and discerning meaning from the dream and then slowly interest started to kind of, there was a little, a little sprig of interest, a little, maybe I'd like to do this. Maybe I, I, I think I'm going to do this. Or I want to check this out. Or I want to take this class. Or I want to join this club. Or I want, and, and there, it just didn't have the same kind of urgency. It didn't have some promise of, if I do this, everything's going to be great, and mom and dad are finally going to love me, and I'm going to be safe for all eternity forever. It was just, I just think I want to try this. Mm. And... Over and over, I would see something evolving that people never expected. That it, it wasn't a passion. It wasn't a bliss. They weren't really, they weren't following some kind of big, uh, big dream. It was just, let me try this. Let me see. Let me dabble. Let me explore. And, and there was a kind of exhaustion that comes from, from just recovering from a big, deep dream. Um, the, that I don't, I think it's a good thing to not want to jump into something and, and and attach all of that, my life and my happiness are dependent on this thing. Instead, you're in your now and you're following your interest. Well, I think there's a, a truism about grief there too, which is that when you've faced what you think is the worst, you're free. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's pretty pleasurable in the end, huh? <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I, I talk about in the book, you know, I, I sort of sometimes feel embarrassed. I feel like my cheeks hurt. I'm smiling so much. I just, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I really, the, the contrast from where I started when I really was so convinced I could never be happy without this to the kind of um, life that's emerged by me just following that interest and following the, well, that sounds kind of nice. I think maybe I'd like to do that and not being so attached to some kind of outcome of uh, this will give me something else, but just being in the moment with that interest and curiosity. Such a great place to end, Tracy. I want to thank you so much for this. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Absolutely. And and listeners, please go to T-R-A-C-E-Y-C-L-E-A-N-T-I-S dot com to learn more about the book and about Tracy. Next week, I'll be talking with Zoe Carter. Zoe's book, Imperfect Endings, A Daughter's Tale of Life and Death, talks about her mother's decision to end her own life after a long battle with Parkinson's disease. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.